name is Cecilia Beam, and I have the pleasure of coordinating many of San Francisco Ballet's audience engagement programs. Thank you for joining us tonight at San Francisco Ballet's Points of View Lecture Series. These free educational events occur every Wednesday throughout the season and offer our patrons and the general public unique opportunities to learn more about the art form in San Francisco Ballet. As a reminder, San Francisco Ballet offers Points of View events as well as pre-performance Meet the Artist interview via podcasts on our website. You can find podcasts under the Explore tab. There you can learn about other audience engagement offerings. I hope to see you at our programs. I want to tell you a little bit about Ballet 201, which begins at the end of February. It's a three-session course focusing on classical ballet. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I have two pieces of information tonight. The first is that at the end of tonight's presentation, you will have the opportunity to ask questions. Please come to the microphone at the center aisle to ask your questions. This way, we will all hear your question, and it will be captured for the podcast. The second is patrons who are attending the Points of View lecture and not tonight's performance are reminded to exit to your right at the end of the talk and to return the POV ticket to the usher. And now for the benefit of our future podcast audience, tonight is Wednesday, January 25th, 2017, and we are at the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco. It gives me enormous pleasure to introduce our speaker, Claudia LaRocco. Claudia LaRocco is a writer whose work frequently revolves around interdisciplinary projects and collaborations. She's the author of The Best, Most Useless Dress, which encompasses a decade's worth of poetry, essays, performance texts, and reviews. She, is she has been presented by the Walker Art Center, the Kitchen, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and has received grants from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation and Creative Capital Warhol Foundation. Ms. LaRocco had residencies at the Headland Center for the Arts, Lower Manhattan Cultural Center, and on the Boards Theater. Her collaborators are many, including choreographer Michelle Ellsworth, the performance company Finley Sandsmark, and the musician-composer Philip Greenleaf. She's a contributor to such publications as Artform, Bomb, and the New York Times, and is editor-in-chief of SFMOMA's art and cultural platform, Open Space. There's much more I could tell you about Ms. LaRocco, but now I will turn it over to her for her to share her thoughts about the rise of a new crop of choreographers spotlighting Justin Peck. Please welcome Claudia LaRocco. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming, and thanks to the San Francisco Ballet for asking me to deliver these remarks. Um, they're a condensed version of a talk I gave here in April on the occasion of the premiere of Justin Peck's In the Countenance of Kings. I first caught a glimpse of Justin Peck in 2006 while reporting a story for the New York Times following two New York City Ballet apprentices for several months as they transitioned from students to professionals. I remember seeing a lanky, athletic-looking boy among that crop of dance babies. I don't really remember anything else about Justin beyond this physical impression of an obviously incredibly trained dancer who was also an American teenager who hadn't quite grown into his body yet. Three years after that, in 2009, I reviewed a program of dances by the Columbia Ballet Collaborative, which is Columbia University's student troupe. The program featured a lot of typical student efforts, but one of the more intriguing works was a duet by Justin, who was then a City Ballet core dancer. I wrote that it was, quote, a breathless burst with a classical but punkish tone, not bad for a first attempt. Let's see where he goes. This strikes me now as rather officious writing, but I was still very much learning my craft as well. 
After another three years passed, I profiled Peck in the Times as he was skyrocketing to choreographic fame. His company debut was being presented on a bill alongside none other than Christopher Wielden and Benjamin Millepied during the company's annual summer residency in upstate New York. In the season to come, he would create two acclaimed works for the company's main stage, bursting fully onto the elite ballet choreographer's scene. Peck grew up in San Diego and then at the New York City Ballet School of American Ballet, and what he represents is that rarest of developments, a homegrown 21st century choreographic talent who has been honing his craft both in the company's research arm called the New York Choreographic Institute, where he perhaps developed his love of process, and in the ridiculous fishbowl conditions of the company itself. His ballets have been rapturously received by audiences who've showered him with electric ovations and by the less easily pleased critics who've showered him with praise, remarking in particular on his surprisingly mature feel for handling core members as actual humans rather than just human backdrops. Peck's near-universal acclaim is an almost miraculous development in a ballet-hungry city that spends no small amount of energy worrying over the health of the art form. See Jennifer Homan's Declaration of Ballet's Death in her history of ballet, Apollo's Angels, for one recent salvo in this never-ending story. That declaration came to my mind when San Francisco Ballet invited me here. In the years since Homan's made her dire proclamation, we've seen the emergence of an exciting crop of young dancers and dance makers. And Homan's has thrown her energies into the Center for Ballet and the Arts, an NYU think tank, suggesting she feels the corpse can yet be revived. Certainly, there remain deeply troubling aspects to who rises to artistic power and how in the ballet industry, as emphasized by the extreme lack of women choreographers and choreographers of color on major ballet stages. Yet it's heartening to see the ways in which younger members of the ballet world are pushing against history even as they celebrate it. This includes the dancers as well. For example, rather than waiting for her company to address gender inequality, the city, the city Ballet star Sarah Mearns recently engaged the choreographer Jody Melnick to work with her and two other City Ballet dancers in an independent project, a trio which premiered at the Guggenheim Museum in November. I see Peck's work as being in certain aspects inseparable from this context. It's why I chose to title this talk Sense and Sensibility, Thoughts on Justin Peck and a New Generation. And I should emphasize at the outset that a generation in ballet terms tends to mean a handful of people. The choreographers of distinction are few and far between in this exacting and expensive art form. I want also to emphasize that Peck and his peers are very young. He's not yet 30. I think he turns 30 this year. It can be easy, especially in a field where there is always a push for the next big thing, to forget that despite having a thrillingly distinct voice, he is still learning, still very much in process. For this talk, which is a sort of verbal critic's notebook, I'm drawing from some of the pieces I've written about Peck for the Times, Art Forum, and other publications, as well as many hours spent interviewing him and his peers, following them in the studio and on stage. Some of the quotes I'm including from the interviews have been previously published, but most wound up on the cutting room floor or were only ever published in another language. Some of these remarks I feel confident about, and some of the limbs are rather shakier. I would hope they would be disputed or at least complicated by the artist were he in the room. 
Peck's output is prodigious. By the end of the current rep season, he will have created 14 works for City Ballet, where he is now resident choreographer, a post that has only been held by Christopher Wielden from 2001 to 2008. He has pushed himself in new directions in many of his works, such as tackling his first full-length story ba storybook ballet in 2010. And tomorrow at New York City Ballet will be the premiere of his latest work, The Times Are Racing, which incorporates vernacular dance forms like tap and has the dancers in sneakers instead of point shoes, a la City Ballet's first great American-born choreographer, Jerome Robbins, and the American postmodern star, Twyla Tharp. It also features Peck himself dancing and remarkably boasts a gender-neutral principal role. As far as I know, that's a first. The score is from a 2012 Dan Deacon album titled America. The costumes feature words like unite, protest, and fight. And the choreography itself, according to Peck, is informed by the current political upheaval in the country. <clears throat> There's a great preview of that work available online. For this talk, however, I'd like to start by showing a few minutes of Peck's very first work for City Ballet. It's one of several clips the company generously gave me. Increases is set to the first and third movements of four movements for two pianos by Philip Glass. The dancers are Sarah Adams, Emily Garrity, Brittany Pollock, Gretchen Smith, Daniel Applebaum, Robert Fairchild, Taylor Stanley, and Christian Torzanski. This is close to the original cast, and other than Fairchild, who was Peck's roommate when they were at the School of American Ballet, there were no principal dancers cast in the piece, and only one soloist. Peck was pulling from his peer group, people he knew intimately. This is a key element to understanding his ethos as a choreographer.
So you can perhaps immediately see the emphasis on architecture. From the arrangement of the two pianos facing off upstage like alien ships, to the kaleidoscope patterns of the dancers as they coalesce and disperse. Peck communicates through structure, working within and around, and sometimes momentarily resisting or reorienting a highly codified movement language. He isn't typically a storyteller in the traditional narrative sense. Instead, he pulls drama from friction of textures and from buoyant flows of material. Gesture and humor hint at character and story and offer small shifts and syncopations in tone. It's clear that he's still digesting the steps he dances as a city ballet soloist and appropriating them for his own purposes. You can see here, for example, the stamp of Balanchine's crystalline construction. You also see Peck following Alexei Rotmansky's lead in the interpolation of non-classical materials of small moments for individual and group expression alike. <coughs> Sorry for my raggedy voice. I have that thing that everybody has or has had or is going to have. <clears throat> I interviewed the dance writer Brian Siebert, a regular contributor to The Times and The New Yorker, for a profile I wrote on Peck several years ago for the German publication Tons. When I asked him how he saw Peck fitting into the larger sweep of lineage and influence at City Ballet, he responded, quote, it's so absolutely evident in his dances that he's been dancing in and looking at Balanchines and Robbins and Ratmansky. And I think also looking at Balanchine and Robbins through Ratmansky's eyes. That's how a tradition is supposed to work in an institution like that. You're inside of a tradition looking at it and building new works off of it. Beyond these choreographic influence, Peck is giving a nod to tradition with his design choices. The work you just saw a clip of was made on a shoestring budget by ballet standards and for the costumes, Peck raided City Ballet's closet, deconstructing what he described as, quote, reject unitards for the guys and turning them into high-waisted tights. As he said to me at the time, it gave me some comfort to know about the history of the company that Balanchine did the same thing with the black and white ballets. There wasn't much of a budget, so he made them wear practice clothes. Like many of Peck's ballets, Increases gains much of its power and interest from the dynamic between the individual and the group. Time and again, a lone dancer breaks out from the collective only to have his or her movement instigate another formation or be reabsorbed entirely into a hive-like massing. The dancers often are drawn into larger images that reflect natural compositions, breaking across the stage like waves or darting and gathering like schools of fish and flocks of birds. There's also a striking equality of movement on several levels. First, there's equality in terms of the one principal dancer often simply being part of the group, while core dancers all have their own moments to shine. This is part of what gives Peck's ballets the sense of being true ensembles with the momentum coming from the corpus, that is the main body and mass of the structure. And then there is the equality of gender. Though there are moments of traditional partnering there are as well moments in which everyone is doing the same thing. <clears throat> All of these things are very subtly wound together, not as didactic points or revolutionary gestures, but as a weaving of past and present. It's a remarkably mature and authoritative piece for such a young artist, and this authority only seemed to grow in Peck's second City Ballet Commission.
This piece was Year of the Rabbit, which had its premiere on the company's main stage in the fall of 2012 and was the beginning of Peck's fruitful collaboration with the American singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens, which you'll see more of tonight. There would have been safer and more obvious choices for Peck than approaching a composer who had no interest in or experience with the ballet. It is perhaps evidence of Peck's faith in ballet as a contemporary vehicle that he wanted to work with an artist who was of his time and culture. Year of the Rabbit afforded Peck the opportunity to work with a larger cast, 18 dancers in all. Looking at increases, one begins to get hints of Peck's skill and invention with building and dispersing structures. In Year of the Rabbit, his abilities and creativity become gorgeously apparent, as does his interest in moving away from traditional ballet hierarchies. Here's what he said in a conversation at the Guggenheim Museum's Works and Process series about the making of the ballet. I really wanted to create an equality between the principal dancers and the corps de ballet. Usually when you see ballet, it's more about the corps supporting the movement of the principals. I wanted to make a sort of democratic environment on stage to show this back and forth between the principal dancers and the corps. Not in a destructive way, in a constructive way. This emphasis of constructive, not destructive, is typical, is typical of Peck. He's an artist interested in change as evolution, not revolution. And here's a brief excerpt from Year of the Rabbit. As you watch, I want you to note again the held hands of the dancers, the emphasizing of an innocent co connection that isn't about gender. When Robert Fairchild joins Ashley Bowder on stage, rather than it being a moment for a romantic exchange between principals, it instead only reinforces that the action is really in the dynamic between the lone principal dancer and the massing of the core as they shapeshift. And what they are doing is always at least, if not more, engrossing than what the ostensible star is doing. Refreshingly, Peck is typically more interested in crowds than in couples. Fairchild's solo moment then yields to a brief interlude of a rather wild masculine abandon a very particular sort of energy as the women are upstage turned into their own communal moment. This is a far cry from the Balanchine adage that, quote, woman is ballet and man is the gardener. At other times, there is again the equality of action across gender lines.
This equality of movement and hopeful, at times even naive, communal sense is a key aspect I see in the work of young American ballet dancers and choreographers. And that's a shot of Peck uh, in the studio with San Francisco ballet dancers. And I should say the other photographs are of the piece that I think all of you are seeing tonight. A few years ago, I interviewed Troy Schumacher, a core dancer at City Ballet, who was followed close behind Peck in rising to prominence. I was asking Troy if he saw any generational commonalities as well as links between his choreography and Peck's, and this was part of his answer. Quote, ballet is based on this royal concept, and you really see it when we do these classical ballets. There's generally a monarchy, and everything is very presentational. But socially, that context has changed. I definitely see it in Justin's work, and I try to do this as well, to be very conscious of a communal feeling. Just what I have experienced about the way people relate to each other. While at some point you can't help having people dancing in the background, I try very hard not to make people subservient to one another. In the workplace, there is obviously a hierarchy, but when you come out of that and we're just in the world, we're all equal. I try to show that. It's a strikingly hopeful statement, isn't it, when you consider the many intense and horrifying inequities that are all around us. I think it speaks to the happy work conditions that are reportedly to be found inside of the company, which is by all accounts a stark contrast to the dark years that followed in the wake of Balanchine's death and the anxious conservatism of those who came up immediately after that. And it also perhaps speaks to what a closed and homogenous world ballet can be. In an art form that demands so much of its practitioners from such an early age, it can be difficult to look beyond one's immediate surroundings. Here's just a one-minute clip of Clearing Dawn, a 2014 ballet that was Schumacher's choreographic debut at City Ballet. It's set to music by the American composer Judd Greenstein, and this is the original cast. Ashley Bowder, Claire Kretschmar, Georgina Paskogin, Teresa Reichlin, David Protus, and Andrew Vayette. First, a lot of what's striking about Schumacher's work next to Peck's are the differences. Where there's unison, it's loose. Where Peck hones geometric patterns and angled shapes, Schumacher opts for freer, softer constructions with hazily or perhaps no edges. He's committed to ballet as a language, but is intent upon resisting it as a way of structuring groups of people. The spaciousness in Schumacher's work feels more about a freedom and ease in an individual dancer's relationship to individual steps than in a kinetic rush. 
whereas dancers in Peck's work often talk about the sheer amount of steps in phrases. As Robert Fairchild said to me of his role in Increases, it's an ensemble piece, but I've got four variations in it, four little solos, and the movement is just so challenging. He loves a lot of intricacies and details and coordination, and it's jazzy, clever choreography. Compare this with Clearing Dawn. There's repetition of ribboning, turning jumps, the feeling reinforced by both Tom Brown's school uniform costumes and the trilling score is one of innocence and luxurious openness, with dancers often stopping and falling into everyday postures and physicality to watch their fellows do something before jumping back into the fray. Schumacher's use of space is also different. As opposed to a tight formation reminiscent of Balanchine, we have something closer to Robin's circular placement of a community of peers. But I think what's different about these clips ultimately points to similar concerns and similar approaches of synthesizing the past while looking for quiet ways to shift it. In Schumacher's almost decentralized use of space and in Peck's playing up the tightness of the ensemble as the seat of the action, there is an insistence on a communal ethos and a moving away from deeply ingrained ballet hierarchies. Like Peck, Schumacher makes a point of putting dancers of different ranks on equal footing. In Clearing Dawn, the original cast consists of three principals, a soloist, and two core dancers. And one would be hard-pressed from the clip I just showed to point to who holds what rank. And both choreographers are intent on creating self-conscious worlds on stage in which regard for each other serves as a sort of inward-looking break of the fourth wall. However staged these momentary breaks from presentational ballet technique are, they nonetheless serve to underline that, beyond being dancers, these are people as well, a community of peers engaged in and with each other for a common goal. There are, of course, many ballets that create a world on stage and many casts that evoke communities. Further, the shifts that I've described toward non-hierarchical communal structures are very subtle and quiet. They resonate loudly in the world of major contemporary ballet companies, in the context of contemporary dance in a broader sense, looking at the many developments that have occurred for decades around improvisational and collective scoring structures, these shifts wouldn't register at all. The same for any hints of opening up around gender roles and the portrayal of sexuality. I think too that the very particular context of New York City Ballet needs to be part of the conversation. When we talk about shifts in choreography, we have to also talk about shifts in dancers and in a larger mindset about what is and isn't possible on the stage. When I started working as a dance critic in New York in the early 2000s, conversations around the present health and possible future of ballet still very much revolved around the 20th century giants, and in particular, George Balanchine. City Ballet's upper ranks of dancers were then dominated by individuals who came into the company shortly after Balanchine died or in a few cases while he was still alive. Many of them had worked with Robbins in the final years leading up to his death in 1998, and when I would talk with these dancers or with older dance goers, the conversation would inevitably turn in a very personal way to what these two men would have thought. They were forever asking questions that couldn't be answered. Here's how Wendy Whelan, the great American ballerina who came up directly in the wake of Balanchine's death, described her formative years in the company. Quote, all day in the school it was Balanchine wanted this and Balanchine wanted that. 
So there was always a backward glance, and at the same time, there was a very public and nasty discussion happening in the press around what the company was doing wrong. I was told again and again by older critics that I had missed all the good stuff. It's not surprising that, as I had heard many times from folks like Whelan, the morale in the company was pretty low and pretty non-collegial. Yet all this time, the company was commissioning new work. That deeply American and modern insistence on the new thing, the next thing, never left it. And with Christopher Wielden's development as a choreographer in the late 1990s and early 2000s, City Ballet finally got its first big breath of new air from within, a vital reminder that history could lie ahead of it, not just behind it. Looking through my notes for that Tons article I quoted earlier, I saw that I had asked Wielden some of these same questions about lineage. Here's what he said. Somebody said to me recently in an interview, do you feel you are not the last of the Mohicans, but the first? And I was kind of the beginning of this new generation of young choreographers in ballet. Following me was Ben Millipier, Liam Scarlett in London, and now Justin coming through. He continued, as generations progress, there's definitely more of an outside influence coming into their lives and into the studio. It was still kind of old school when I first got into City Ballet. And there's definitely a confidence, I will say that, in Liam and in Justin. Maybe it's that they're one generation away, that one step further removed from Balanchine and Ashton. It gives them more confidence to launch into the work and not be in any way tied to the past. And then he gave one of his lovely little laughs and said, I'm just making this up. But I think Wielden was absolutely right. It felt like night and day to talk with dancers who only joined the company in the 2000s versus the older generation. You felt this in interviews, and you saw it in how they danced. If we're talking strictly aesthetics, I think that Ratmansky and Balanchine's influence, impulses, as well as modern dance crossovers like Tharp, are more immediately identifiable in Peck's work than are Wielden's. Wielden has inherited much from Balanchine's great modernist explorations of sexual dynamics as larger structural metaphors, and the menacing sculptural quality in his most powerful work is worlds away from the non-sexual rush of movement that typically characterizes Peck's choreography for couples. Yet we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Wielden for being one of the forces that made Peck's emergence possible and for helping to inch City Ballet forward from a place of mourning and stasis. And for a big institution like this, those first few inches are both crucial and hard won. This easing of the weight of history hasn't led to a wholesale abandoning of the past, but just the opposite. What we've seen in the last few years is a return to a certain clarity and emphasis on the ballet lexicon, which I think has come in large part as a result of Alexei Rotmansky's influence as an alternative to William Forsythe's deconstruction of the ballet idiom. When I asked Peck a few years later about whether ballet could be a contemporary art form without abandoning its classical roots, this was his response. A lot of people think there's only one direction to go with the future of ballet, but I think there's a lot more to be explored in classical movement. It's hard to push the art form in another direction than one already conceived, which is this contemporary ballet line of evolution. But I think that Rotmansky, he's come the closest. It's a really difficult task, and so you don't see it very often, but it's something I hope to achieve. Rotmansky has the benefit of being in more than one world. He marries a certain Soviet bravura, particularly when it comes to male energy with the stripped down speed and sleekness of American neoclassical abstraction. 
And so we have Peck inhaling all of this as a young dance maker and dancer. Um, oh, and I'm supposed to uh, let you know that I have just a few minutes left, so if you are interested, we'll have time for a few questions. You can begin making your way to the microphone. So you may see in the ballet tonight many of the elements I've been talking about. The dynamic between individual and crowd, the highlighting of masculine energy and innocence of romantic relations, the architecture of the group as a way to build meaning. When I saw it last year, the friend I'd gone with smiled and turned to me and said, that ballet is like everything good about Americans. A few years ago, I asked Peck whether he thought of national styles, and this was part of his response. I like to think I have a true American style of choreographing. That's another thing I've been thinking about. There hasn't been any American to emerge since even Jerome Robbins. Forsyth was basically European. He worked in Europe for most of his career. And so I feel this, there is this difference. There's no one really representing America and that's something I want to aspire to. I'm proud of where I work and where I come from. You see this pride in particular thematic choices Peck makes in ballets and in his choice of collaborators. And on a more fundamental level, you see an American inclination in the expansive space-eating quality of Peck's work. In rehearsal, he frequently asks for a greater intensity of energy and attack. And his most commanding choreography is possessed of an inexorably optimistic kineticism. Peck grew up with the endless horizon of the Pacific and then poured himself into the city that never sleeps. He's talked a lot about the adrenaline rush of New York, and I think the city shouldn't be underestimated as a creative partner for those who have come through New York City Ballet. In that same interview I earlier mentioned with Wielden, I asked him if there was an American style, and he said, oh yeah, I think so. American dancers move differently, especially in New York City Ballet. There's a sleekness, there's a hunger for a movement, and all wrapped up into that as well. There's a work ethic quite different from a European work ethic, which all plays into a different experience. When I say American, I think I would even narrow it down to being a particular trait of New York City Ballet. They're the most American of ballet companies, and the dancers within the company are quite different from dancers anywhere else. Peck's work is also marked by a tendency towards razzle-dazzle, a quintessential American flair. Some of this perhaps comes from Twyla Tharp, and the jazz current can also be traced to Robbins and to Balanchine, who of course choreographed for the screen and stage and even circus, and who, continually, who was continually studying and incorporating American movement idioms with his Russian immigrant's eye. Balanchine can sometimes look very foreign to Peck, but both artists share a delight in spectacle that is at once innocent and sophisticated and a seamless integration of non-balletic idioms. And Peck has clearly imbibed Balanchinian structure, speed, and energetic attack, as well as his penchant for showstopper show scenes full of humorous turns and vaudevillian energies. So maybe you begin to get a sense of why the air has been so electric when Peck has debuted new works at City Ballet. I've only experienced as much excitement during Rotmansky premieres. After one show, the principal dancer, Adrian Donchig Waring, texted me to say, I'm grateful he's working here. And as an audience member, I feel the same. There's something about the moment he's in, a particular alchemy of time and place and people. I was delighted when, in The Countenance of Kings, opened here last year to feel that familiar energy in the room, that same surge, and again, a standing ovation. 
and I look forward to seeing the work again tonight. Thank you. So we have a grand total of four minutes, if anyone does have a question. Um, I'm not sure, I'm, would, I'm sure he has heard of Mark Morris, um, okay, well, I do know that he was at the final, um, many of the City Ballet dancers were at, and ABT dancers were at the final Cunningham events in New York, and interestingly, they, um, they found it energetically exciting, but emotionally cold. Yes. Hi. I appreciated the fact that you... Um, used the word extreme when you talked about the lack of female choreographers in ballet. Can you speak a little bit more to that and <clears throat> speak to what you think needs to be done in order to encourage, promote, and uh, mentor young female choreographers specifically for ballet? Yeah, Thank you. Um, I mean, it's a really complicated and layered thing. There's many more, um, you know, women and girls who go into ballet, um, and that has to do, of course, um, some of that has to do with, you know, um, stigmas against men participating in the arts, and especially in dance in this country, that it's not seen as a suitable masculine pursuit. And so as a result, the men are often encouraged because they, you know, they want, the field needs to keep them, they're given scholarships, so, and like in many fields that are dominated by women, the men get a glass uh, escalator. Um, but also in many of the big companies, the women are doing a lot more of the dancing. You know, there are whole scene, uh, whole passages in which um, it's dominated by women. And um, a lot of the men I've talked to who have become choreographers um, talk about being bored backstage um, and being encouraged for creativity where perhaps the women are not as encouraged. Um, so I think it, it has to happen at a very young age. I mean, it has to happen early on with initiatives for um, young women to be making um, and not just for company. I think maybe a lot of companies sort of wait for them to emerge. Um, and that's, it's too late by then, often. Um, we have one minute left. Any uh, questions, ironic or otherwise? Nope. Well, thank you very much. Hi everybody, I'm your house manager, Jamie, and I just want to let you know, uh, to say one, to say thank you for being here for the points of view lecture. If you have a ticket for tonight, you can stay in your seat or go to your seat or go to any level that you're seated on. You do not have to leave the auditorium. Uh, if you do not have a ticket for tonight, you can exit to your right, give your voucher back to the uh, usher at the door, and then exit the venue. If you would like to see tonight's performance and you don't have a ticket yet, you can go around to the box office and get a ticket for tonight's performance. Again, thank you all for being here and enjoy.